One dark night, three little boys jumped on their bikes and set out to rent a movie. Only two of them made it home. I'm Chris, and this is True Crime Recaps. Back in the 80s, adventure was only two wheels and a set of handlebars away. If you were a kid with a bike, the world was your oyster. Or at least that's how it felt to 11-year-old Jacob Wetterling, his younger brother Trevor, and their friend Aaron Larson. To them, a predator was just a movie, Arnold Schwarzenegger's nemesis. Nothing a kid needed to be scared of. Not in real life. Not in the small farming town of St. Joseph, Minnesota. Not even in the dark. But on April 22, 1989, they met the devil on a country road, and nothing was ever the same again. On that Saturday night, the Wetterlings were making the most out of a three-day weekend. The grown-ups were out with friends, and their oldest daughter was at a slumber party. So their oldest son, 11-year-old Jacob, and his friend Aaron were left in charge of Trevor and their little sister. By 8 p.m., the boys were hatching a plan to make it a movie night. They were all sports nuts, and Major League had just come out. The Tom Thumb convenience store would probably have it on the shelves. The store was only about two miles away, but they had their bikes. It would be easy to get over there and back with the movie and snacks. What could be better than no school on Monday and staying up late watching a new release on Sunday? But Jacob was a responsible kid, and he knew they couldn't take off without permission. But Mom and Dad didn't think it was such a good idea. Not at first. It was getting late, it was dark, who would watch their little sister, but the boys had an answer for everything. Biking to the store was nothing new. It was nothing but cornfields and a few driveways the whole way, and they'd all be together, the three of them. Plus, they promised to wear reflective gear and bring flashlights to be safe. And as for their little sister, no problem. The teenage girl next door was willing to come over and watch her. It was a great plan. Until it wasn't. The boys made it to the store in record time, but Major League was gone, so they got Naked Gun and extra snacks instead. The night wasn't going to be a total bust. They were a mile away when the lights from the town all but disappeared behind them. Another half mile, and they were swallowed by the dark. But they weren't afraid. With their flashlights to guide their way, they pedaled slowly, laughing and talking about the night ahead. They were half a mile from Jacob's house when they spotted something on the road. It wasn't a deer or a dog. It was a man. He was dressed in black with a dark mask hiding his face, and he had a gun. The boys panicked. Was this some high school kid pulling a prank? But no, it was soon obvious this guy meant business. He ordered them to toss their bikes into the ditch and lie face down. Then he asked them how old they were. When Trevor told him he was 10, the man said, Run away, don't look back, or I'll shoot. He did as he was told. The man looked intently at Aaron and Jacob. Without a word, he put his hand on Aaron's crotch and asked him how old he was. When he said 11, he told him the same thing he said to Trevor. Run away, don't look back, or I'll shoot. By the time Aaron worked up the courage to look back, Jacob and the strange man had disappeared. What happened to his best friend remained a mystery for 27 years. But the events of that night sounded all too familiar to another traumatized family. Ten months before Jacob was snatched off that country road, a 12-year-old boy in Cold Spring, 10 miles away, was going through a similar nightmare. After ice skating, he was walking home when a strange man stopped to ask for directions. Before he knew what was going on, he was forced into the car, driven to a remote spot, and violated in the back seat. The man let him go but he kept the boys' pants and underwear as souvenirs. 
He didn't know he had left something of his behind, a unique fiber, and that teeny clue helped lead the police to Danny Heinrich. Back then, Danny was a 26-year-old high school dropout, working the line at a cabinet manufacturer and living in Painesville, Minnesota, 20 minutes from Cold Spring. In December 1989, as the Wetterling family was facing their first Christmas without Jacob, the FBI was interviewing Danny about the Cold Spring rape and the missing 11-year-old from St. Joseph. But he denied any involvement in either case. They figured he was lying, but eventually they had to let him go. But not before they got a sample of his DNA and his tennis shoes. You see, they found a set of prints and tire tracks near the spot where Jacob disappeared. But even with Danny's shoes in hand, it wasn't enough to put the pieces together. Not to build a case that would stand up in court anyway. But the attacks in Cold Spring and St. Joseph weren't the only unsolved assaults in the area. Two weeks before Jacob was taken, another boy around his age filed a similar police report. He said he and a friend had been followed and harassed by a man with a similar description wearing dark clothes. But they didn't make the connection to Jacob's case. There were also several attempted kidnaps two years earlier. Starting in the summer of 1986 through early 1987, a strange man tried to grab five preteen boys off the streets of Painesville. But the jurisdictional red tape being what it is, no one working the cases realized they were all searching for the same man. Not until a blogger named Joy Baker took a good long look at the big picture and started putting the pieces together in 2010. As it turned out, they had the right guy all along. By 2015, DNA technology had caught up to the mystery, and testing established an undeniable link between Danny Heinrich and the semen he left on his victim in Cold Spring. Unfortunately, it was too late. He had managed to evade the law long enough to run out the statute of limitations on the case, and there was no forensic evidence linking him to Jacob's disappearance. It looked like he was going to get away with it after all. But men like him can't stay under a rock for long. Eventually, their own twisted desires tripped them up, and that's what happened here. When investigators searched his house, they didn't find a trace of the missing Jacob, but they found something else. Nineteen binders full of child pornography. Inside were more than 150 images of little boys and girls that Danny had painstakingly printed off the internet and saved in his sick scrapbooks. It wasn't a kidnapping or murder charge, but booking him on child pornography would have to do. Now, it's been said that when men like Danny get to prison, they don't stay healthy for too long. And Danny knew that too. So he made a deal. Tell them what happened to Jacob Wetterling. Lead them to the body and he'd go to federal prison for pornography, not murder, kidnapping, or rape. It was a deal with the devil, but the Wetterlings agreed to make it. It took 27 years to get to the truth. Here's the rest of Jacob's story from the mouth of the killer himself. He had first noticed the boys biking down the road toward the store, so he pulled into a driveway and waited for them to come back. It wasn't the first time he took a kid, but it was the first time he used a gun. It wasn't loaded, though. Of course, the boys didn't know that. He cuffed Jacob's hands behind his back and forced him into the passenger seat of his car. They drove around for a long time listening to a police scanner in his car, that's how he knew when and where the search parties were. The only thing Jacob asked was, what did I do wrong? But Danny had no answer for him, and he just kept driving farther away back toward Painesville, where he lived. When he spotted a grove of trees, he pulled over and led Jacob out of sight. 
He told him to undress. Danny did too. And under cover of darkness in the trees, he forced the boy to touch him and touch himself. Thirty minutes went by. Then Jacob told him he was cold. Danny pulled on his clothes and told his hostage to do the same. He thought maybe he'd take him close to St. Joseph and let him find his way home from there. But as they were heading back to the car, he spotted a police cruiser zip by with its lights on. That's when he changed his mind. The sixth grader wouldn't be going home that night. He told him to turn around, and behind Jacob's back, Danny loaded the gun with two bullets. With the boy's back still turned, he raised the gun and pulled the trigger, but nothing happened. He pulled it again, and it was fired, but Jacob was still standing. For a third time, he pulled the trigger, and that's when he fell to the ground, dead. He left his body there and went to his apartment to get a shovel. It didn't take long before he realized the shovel wasn't nearly big enough to hide the body before daybreak. But there was a construction site nearby, and Danny knew how to operate a bobcat. He also knew where the keys would be hidden. With the machine, he dug Jacob's grave. But that wasn't the last time he would see the 11-year-old. He came back a year later to check on the gravesite. Much to his surprise, the body seemed to have worked its way to the surface again. He could see Jacob's red jacket and the reflective gear he'd been wearing. So he grabbed a bag, returned to the site, collected as much of Jacob's bones and clothes as he could, and took him across the road to a farm where he dug another grave. That's where Jacob was buried, 30 miles away from his home in St. Joseph. In August 2016, he finally went home. Jacob wanted to be a veterinarian. He wanted to help creatures who were too vulnerable to help themselves. In death, he did just that. His case prompted his parents to start a nonprofit in his name. Today, it's called the Jacob Wetterling Resource Center. Their mission is to work to end all forms of child maltreatment through education, training, and prevention. The Wetterlings were also instrumental in creating the first state and national sex offender registry in 1994. Since then, it's changed and evolved into the three-tier system it is today. And the man responsible for the tragedy that inspired it is serving out his 20-year sentence for child pornography at a federal medical center. And with any luck, that will be the last we hear of him. And that's your recap. What do you think of the deal the Wetterlings had to make to find out what happened to their son? And remember, if you like getting all the crime in half the time, it would mean a lot to Amy and I if you took a moment to give this a like and hit subscribe so you never miss a recap. Thanks for being here. Until next time, take care.